Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of How I Crossed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent in the community. And I'm Tunde. Now, for any sport fans out there, you'll find this particular episode interesting. On the podcast this week, we speak to Sky Sports presenter and reporter Carl Walker. Not to be confused with Carl Walker, the England football player. This Carl Walker has not only worked for Sky Sports, but he's also done work for BBC Five Live, BBC Football Focus, Match of the Day, Manchester City TV, EA Sports, and even FIFA itself. He comes from Manchester and actually started off training as an actor before moving over to journalism. He talks about growing up in Side, how he got his big break, and what Jurgen Klopp is really like. Welcome to the show, Carl Walker. How are you doing, Carl? I'm great, thank you. I mean, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me to be involved. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah, we're, we're so keen to get you on the show. I mean, just for the listeners out there, Keisha Thompson, who we had on the show maybe two or three episodes back, she recommended Carl. And I, I mean, I was aware of, of Carl before she made the recommendation anyway, through your work with, you know, Sky and, and so forth. But um, I think it would be a real joy for the listeners to get an insight into your career to date. And obviously, you, you know, you know, Keisha as well. I mean, do you catch up with Keisha much or has it been a while since you last spoke to her? Well, it was quite funny because recently we've caught up just via email. I've known Keisha, gosh, since I was, I started going to contact theatre when I was 13 years old. I think it was when I was a little bit older, maybe 15, when I joined the um, Young Actors Company that I started to get to know Keisha um, a lot better because she was part of Young Identity, the um, collective there, the spoken word collective. And they were kind of happening at the same time. Um and I always remember seeing her and listening and being invited to so many different events. So I've known Keisha for so long and Young Identity and everything that that's become over the years uh, for such a long time. Um, but it wasn't until recently till she got in touch with me about coming on here. And then also I started to see the work that she's been doing um, and all the success that she's had recently, where we've kind of reconnected um, and I'm hoping to get back into contact and, yeah, see all the stuff that they're doing because that place has got a massive part in my heart. Um, and then also, I mean, we'll talk about it, but it's helped shape me professionally as well. So I feel like me and Keisha have kind of seen and benefited from organisations like Contact Theatre over the years. Yeah, I mean, I'm from London, but I did used to work and live up in Manchester maybe sort of 10, 11 years ago, just before the Olympics. So I have been to contact and I'm I'm familiar with the work that they do there. And it's great that obviously, you know, the likes of yourself and Keisha as well are really good success stories coming from that from that theatre. So that's that's fantastic. But uh, yeah, let's let's go back to the start. I mean, obviously, you were born in Manchester. What part of Manchester were you born? So I was born near contact, actually, St. Mary's okay. uh, on Oxford Road. So that's where I was born. But I grew up um, mainly in Fallowfield, definitely South Manchester. I think when I was very, very young, Trollton, Rusholme, around those areas. But Fallowfield is what I call home. M14, uh, I still go back there now. A lot of my family still live there. Uh, it's got a massive part of my life um, based there. My mum has recently, well, I say recently, over the last few years, moved away from Fallowfield. 
Uh, but yeah, that's where I call home. Still now walking around and seeing people that I've known over the years, places that I've been going to for years and years and years. Um, it's got a massive, massive part of my identity. Um, and I feel like a lot of people from that area um, have the sim- have similar struggles that I had. You go back there now, you see some of the struggles at play still. And I find that it is fascinating kind of people from Manchester, especially people from South Manchester as well, um, how they are, how they're brought up and kind of how that shapes them as human beings. Yeah. And uh, I see that you went to a school in Mosside. Is, is that correct? Yeah. So it's quite funny because when I was in year six, it was the, the time where you had to put all your options for high schools and um, you put all of them for one school and you would be maybe closer to being guaranteed going to that school. And I put them all down for Oakwood, as it was called at the time, Charlton High School, I think it is now. Didn't get in, so it left me with no choice but to get into Manchester Academy. And when I tell you my mum was not happy about that, <laughs> um, she gave one of the teachers, Mr. Corbett, his name was, he came into my school in year six. And I still remember this to this day. My mum definitely voiced that she wasn't happy about me going to that school. And that's because it was called Juicy. Um, before that, 91 from Manchester, that's similar age to me, will know Juicy. It's a D-U-C-I-E. Um, it was notorious, maybe not for the, the best of reasons, um, but it was changing to an academy and it was changing to Manchester Academy and I was the first year of that academy. However, for year seven and part of year eight, I was in the old Juicy building and it was, yeah, a very interesting place, but it was in Moss Side, as you said. And even growing up in Fallowfield, it was just a short walk down Lloyd Street to get there. Um, but it felt like it was a very different place. And there's been lots of issues that have been well documented over the years between different parts of Manchester. And I think Moss Side was one of those that's had uh, plenty of press and plenty of spe- people speaking about it. And even to this day, people know Moss Side. And that's around the UK, not just in Manchester, for for negative reasons, let's be completely honest. And that's such a shame because I think that Moss Side's got some of the most wonderful, incredible people uh, that have come from there. But because of the label that's attached to it, because of stuff that's real and stuff that's happened, let's be honest as well, that it means that people that are coming from the area, people that go to school in that area, um, they get labelled with this with similar things. And I think at times when you go to a school and I say, oh, where did you go to school? Yeah, I went to Moss, a school in Moss Side, that people automatically think that, well, they think of certain things. And yeah, I think that even people hearing this now, they'll go, oh, you went to school in Moss Side. That means so-and-so, that means such-and-such. And actually, it was actually an incredible experience. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, does Moss Side still have that reputation? Because I know back in the 80s and 90s, it was a bit notorious. But if you consider down south, you know, places like Brixton, Peckham, they used to be quite notorious back in the day. But they've gone through something of a transformation over recent years. And now, you know, nobody would call those areas notorious anymore. So does Moss Side still have that label or have things sort of changed over the years, would you say? Um, I think it's it's starting to change. It's probably not as bad as it was. However, I think you also see the the lack of facilities that are there, um, which is very, very apparent. And I think it's more 
Has it changed in terms of violence and stuff that happens? Some would say yes, some would say no. It depends on the stuff you've seen, the people you know, maybe. But I think one of the things that's definitely present is the lack of facilities for young people um, that are there now. So would I say it's notorious? Not as much, but I think it's still been hit with those labels and people would still label it that, which is a shame. But I think that actually what that means is the people that are from there and the people that are born there, are raised there, that go to school there, they will have seen it change over the years. Um, I notice when I go back, um, I mean, I've got family that live on the parkway. So it's kind of quite interesting because going down, driving down Princess Parkway now, you look at it and you go, wow, the bus station's gone. That's turned into flats. And these flats are going up for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. And you're thinking, what? Like, how is that a representative of this area? But then you walk five minutes down the road and you still see um, the same issues that have been going on for such a long time in those areas as well. And you've not got to look too far back in the news to see that these things are still happening. But I think that's the case with every single area. Let's be completely honest. These things happen all over. Um, And I think that kind of when it comes to areas like Mosside, like Rushome, like Hume, like Levenshume, like Fallowfield, they are going to change over the years. They are going to develop as well. But unfortunately, there are always going to be certain things at play. um, And I've not seen those change too much over the years. Okay. So by all accounts, you were quite a, a sporty kid growing up in primary and secondary school. But as you've mentioned before, you also started to have a, an interest in the arts. Do you remember back then, You maybe in the first few years of secondary school, did, did you have an idea in your mind what you wanted to be when you, when you got older? Um, yeah, I always wanted to be a PE teacher. Ah, okay. um, always. That was kind of just something that I loved. And I think that's because one of my PE teachers at Academy at my school, I really got on well with him, Mr. Smith. He kind of was this teacher that wasn't afraid to just be himself, but also treated the young people uh, in a certain way, which I loved and I thought was brilliant. And he spoke to us like we were uh, young people, um, but listened and communicated, didn't just talk down to us. Uh, So that was something that I always wanted to be, but as I mentioned, at the age of 13, I always remember going to drama drop-in, which was at contact on a Monday. And it was literally a drop-in session where you could go. And I still, to this day, don't really know why I went or how that one came about. But it was actually a couple of years later when I was 15 that I really started to take a keen interest, um, especially in being creative. And I think that's because I had to pick my options as you do in year nine and in the same box was PE and drama and you could only pick one of them. And I remember having this moment where it was like a crossroads. Do I go down and do PE like I've always wanted to, or do I pursue this kind of dream of, I love being creative. I love doing drama. I love getting involved and getting up and improvising and having fun. What do I do? And I chose PE and I think back and I go, well, why was that? Why did I want to be a PE teacher? I think it's possibly because of coming from um, a single parent household, coming from a working class area, you probably go for the safest option. um, And you probably think that that's the only option you really have. And you're being 
slightly pushed towards go for the safe option. You've got to have a backup. You've got to have all of these things um, in place just in case, which I get, but that did limit my creativity. And I thought, all right, I'm going there. I'm doing PE. And don't get me wrong. I've loved sport. I've loved PE. I was that kid where I wasn't the star. I wasn't the captain on the football team, but I was involved in all different sports. I'd do trampolining two nights a week. I'd do cricket two nights a week. I'd be playing football for the school team or also playing for a team outside as well on the weekends and training one night a week. I was doing so much sport and I still love it. But there was this hole where I thought, well, I want to be creative as well. And I remember seeing an advert. I don't know if my mum brought it up or it was in a paper to join or to look at auditioning for this young actors company. Um, and I remember getting an audition, going down to it, and it was at contact again. So it's a space that I'd known and auditioning and getting in. And all of a sudden I'm 15 years old and this young actors company ranges from 15 to 26. And when the sessions start, I then was with people that were my age, but then also people that were much older than me. Um, and working in workshops with them, creating um, three productions over the next year, which just unlocked so much creativity, so much happiness, so much fun. And I really started to see that, wow, this is what I love. And not only that, I can see that other people love it as well. And we're creating something as a unit, as a team, as an acting company. Um, And even though I'm 15, I don't feel much different to the people that are 25, 26. And now I think back, because I'm older than 26, but (laughs) I think back and I go, wow, at 26, it must have been so weird and different to have a 15-year-old in the room. But I I never felt like an outsider. I never felt like an outcast. And I think back to it now going, those years shaped me because I would literally finish school go home and then contact theatre was 100 metres, 200 metres from my school. So I'd be going back that way anyway. But seven until 10 on a Wednesday and Thursday night, I'd be going and doing this extracurricular and getting home at half 10, 11 at night. But it was incredible. I absolutely loved it. No, I mean, I've, I went to drama school myself, so I, I completely understand what you're saying there. And uh, obviously this led to you getting into Aura, which is which was at the time one of the, the top drama schools, certainly down down here in London. I don't know if you know, but that, that's actually closed down now, isn't it, Aura? It has, yeah. Yeah. What what happened? Well it's a shame. I think I don't know the ins and outs because I, I God, I left Aura um wow, nine years ago. Um so that is such a shame because after leaving contact, you could only do a year there. Then I did contact in the world, which again, another incredible experience. And this was all during now being in college. And I didn't know about drama schools. I didn't know that these things existed. But I guess it was something that was very unfortunate that happened between my first and second year of college, where one of my teachers passed away, the drama teacher passed away, that another teacher came in who opened my eyes to what drama schools were. And I spent the the second year of college auditioning and, and learning a Shakespeare piece and a modern piece and going out to 
all of these different drama schools around the country and auditioning for them. And I still remember my audition at Alra being at the Royal Exchange in Manchester because they were opening up their northern campus in Greater Manchester. And again, I thought, wow, what is this? I'm at the Royal Exchange, a place where I've come. And I've seen a couple of plays there, but not too many. And I'm auditioning for this drama school. And I didn't get in during that first year to anywhere except for Alra's foundation course. And there was a point where I remember going, well, this is £2,000. My mum can't pay for that. I can't pay for that. So what are we going to do? And I remember going back and forth with people at the, the drama school. And I then remember getting an email with an offer that I could pay monthly, um, which I took them up on and started doing their foundation course. And from there, then getting into their three-year course, I say it was where I built up a toolkit. First, I think it was for acting, um, which I could build upon working with contact and working professionally as well over the next the course of those years. But then being at Alra, I really started to learn so much. From 8.30 in the morning until 6 at night, we were in five days a week. And it was tough, but I absolutely loved it. I was with people that are still to this day some of the closest people in my life and some of my best friends. And I genuinely believe that's because we spent so much time together doing so many different things, exploring um, and trying out so many different things and learning, failing, creating. And it was almost like we went on a journey together, all of us, um, and Alra for me was such a special time, not just because of the course, not just because of some of the staff, but because of all of the people that I was working with at the same time as well. And it was just a time where I think it was very, very, very special for me and for lots and lots of people. So to now hear that it's no longer there. Yeah, it's crazy. And to, it? to hear the, the way that some of the students were left that were at the drama school at the time, it hurts because... I know how special those times can be and I know how special those young people can, how much they can take from those times as well and how it can help them start to forge a career in this industry, whether that then turns to presenting like myself, whether that turns to teaching, whether that turns to obviously acting as well. They're building up a, a big toolkit, not just to work professionally, but for life. Um, so yeah, Alra's no longer there, but the memories that I've got and all the skills that I learned, they definitely are still there for me. And you, you picked up one or two acting roles around that time. I mean, what kind of work were you doing? I mean, gosh, from being young, um, I was auditioning, it felt like, for Waterloo Road every single week. <laughs> um, and still to this day, I'm saying this, if they're listening and you need a presenter to come in uh, and report on something within the school, I'm there. I am ready. Oh, I would have absolutely <laughs> loved to have done that. So I was always auditioning for parts within Waterloo Road, Hollyoaks, um, but I was doing quite a lot of theatre as well. Um, and I remember coming out of Alra and you're trying, you're auditioning, you're being seen for so many different things. You get a pencil, it's the greatest thing in the world. But ultimately, you, you're facing rejection on a weekly basis, which can hurt. You can get your hopes up. Yeah. You can be excited about something. You think you smashed it and then you don't even get a pencil. And again, you're starting to shape that kind of understanding and that 
that knowledge of what rejection feels like and being able to take it. And then also understanding that it's not, it might just be that you weren't right and that's okay. Um, and you start to build that resilience to it uh, that I've definitely had over the years and still got now. But over the course of it, I was doing quite a lot of theatre. I was also running quite a lot of workshops as well, a skill that I developed from contact and started to do uh, with them and then took that into working with Alra as well and running workshops whilst I was there. But ultimately, I was doing more and more adverts. I was doing more and more theatre. And I started to live this life as a professional actor, which also means you've got to audition, you've got to work, you've got to pay the bills and you've got to make time for acting work as well. So you start to learn this ability to juggle six or seven plates at once and be able to drop everything to get to an audition, um, but then still find time to pay your rent at the end of the month as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, it sounds clear to me that your your time at drama school has really set yourself up for life in, in, in the kind of field that you're in now. I mean, you learn so many different things at drama school, you know, breathing, voice work, posture, so many different things. But um, just keen to, to find out a bit more about arguably the, the most important point in your life in terms of your, your next phase of your, your life and the presenting that you've gone on to do. And this involves a black cab. So could you tell us a bit more about this uh, this black cab situation? Yeah, and I feel like it does actually marry quite a lot of things I've just said there because you have to have this ability to drop everything, not really know why, and then just trust that it could hopefully get you somewhere. Um, And also all of those things you said about breathing, about posture, about communication skills, all these different things you learn at drama school. And it's quite funny thinking back how they come out in the least expected fashion. So I get a call after doing some presenting stuff and I'd been working, um, and I'm a massive Manchester City fan, but I've been working within football and especially on YouTube for a little bit of time and I've been getting in touch with Manchester City. If there's any opportunities, any opportunities, please let me know, let me know. And I got a phone call uh, from the head of City TV, Michael Russell. And he said to me, Kyle, we've got this opportunity. Um, It's on, I think, I can't remember the actual date. It might have been a Saturday. I'm not not sure, or a Sunday. Um, Can you come and do it? And I was running some workshops and I was working at the time. And I said, Michael, I'm sorry, like, I can't do this. I've got work. I've got to go and honour and do this work because I'm being paid for it. You're off me an opportunity that I'm not being paid for. I can't do it. He said, Kyle, come and do this. I said, Michael, I'm not being funny. I know I've that pursued you. I've emailed you so many times. But I can't get out of this. It's too short notice. He said, Kyle, <laughs> get out of it. <laughs> so I did. I spoke to the organisation and I agreed to um, half a day so I didn't go in the morning, I would go back in the afternoon. And I went to the CFA, the City Football Academy, as a Man City fan, not really knowing what to expect, being in this room with loads of different people before it, still didn't have a clue, just got told, well, you're going on Chappie's Taxi. Now that was something that I'd seen on YouTube um, Chappie was the kit man at Manchester City, uh, ex-professional footballer, worked there for years, and he would basically pick the players up and talk to them in a cab. So I thought that we were doing that. There was different fans that were going to be involved. And then 
we got taken to the northern quarter and I had a, a cameraman who was with me. I didn't really expect much. I didn't know what all this fuss was about. And the taxi pulls up for me to get in. Chappie's driving. Thought, okay, that's sweet. And they said, as soon as you get in the taxi, watch your head. I'm quite tall. On the, the GoPros, the cameras that are above, and put your seatbelt on. You've got to do those two things. Perfect. Get in, watch my head on the, the cameras, put the seatbelt on, turn to my right. Oh, wow, Pep Guardiola sat there. The Manchester City manager, who was being announced that day, was currently sat in a taxi with me. Um, and I didn't quite know what to expect, really. <laughs> and I just chatted to him. I remember him saying, hello, Kyle. I was blown away. How does Pep Guardiola know my name? What? Um, and I just proceeded to have a 10, 15-minute conversation as we drove around Manchester um, and I still look back on that conversation and I still think about all the work I'm doing now and think about how I was just myself and I just spoke to him and I remember it being done. He was announced to the world and in Manchester as the Man City manager and I had to go back to work um, and do the rest of this day running these workshops um, thinking not much of it but blown away by that happening. So I then, a few weeks later, the video comes out and it does quite well. I remember it coming out and there's people I know in the video and, and lots of different people were involved. And I remember Braden, who is um, an incredible young person, he on the day shown that he was going to be a star and he was seven years old, I think. Oh, yeah, um, I've seen he that. Got, yeah, he got his yeah. own video. Amazing. And I was part of the other video. Um, but I was then asked to come and start working with the club and to start possibly hosting some things for them. Wow. And out of that one opportunity came other opportunities, more and more, still pushing to do so much more work. And then Kyle Walker signs at Manchester City. And I was in uh, for a meeting about something else. And they said, all right, Kyle's here. You're going to go in and you're going to chat to him. I thought, what? Okay, right. We've got this idea. Let's run with it. And during the the, the video, we kind of do this this um, idea around rating Kyle Walker, what he would rate himself um, within EA Sports FIFA Ultimate Team um, compared to other people. And it's very improvised. It all happens, and this video comes out. It goes big and massive because it's Kyle Walker, um, and we called it Kyle Meets Kyle. And it was just one opportunity after another that kept on coming and coming and coming, especially with Manchester City, with other organisations as well, that all stemmed from getting in this taxi and saying yes to this opportunity, even though it meant that I lost out on a bit of money, even though it meant that I probably annoyed people as well by only being able to do a half day. But I made it work. And even though it stretched me to my limit on that day, I still made it work. So I look back on that moment now and think, oh God, imagine I just said no and I took the extra 60 quid um, that I would have got for the full day um, instead of doing the half day. Uh, and I think back and I go, isn't that funny? Because I've, I've benefited 100 times over from saying yes to that opportunity rather than saying no. That would have been the most expensive 60 pounds yeah, that you've, yeah. you've ever spent, right? I mean, my yeah. gosh. Wow, wow. So, yeah, I mean, it, it all seems to stem 
to that incident in the uh, cab. And shortly after that, I think you were almost headhunted to get your own sort of radio show on on Radio Manchester. Is Is that right? Yeah, which is strange again, because I was working with Man City. I had been doing other stuff as well. Sport Bibles presenter had gone into Love Island, Josh Denzel. He's done amazing things as well, but he was in Love Island and Sport Bible needed a presenter. They asked me to come in. I did this video where I was asked to interview Tiger Woods. What? Crazy. So I'm doing all of these different things and people are starting to see all of the stuff that I'm doing because it's out there on social media. It's out there on the internet. And I made a very conscious decision. Well, I'm going to use my social media as an online CV, a visible CV to see what I'm doing. And it felt like at that time, there started to be a few more people that were starting to see what I was doing. And I remember chatting to a producer. She was at BBC Radio Manchester at the time, Sarah Collins. And she saw me as I was covering City Square, working with them. And she asked me to come in and meet with with one of the editors. Didn't really know much about it. Thought, yeah, I can do that. That's all right. And she was like, no, you're going to come in. I want you to come in and meet with with the editor of of BBC Radio Manchester. Um, I thought, right, fine, no worries at all. I went into this not really knowing that I was meeting Kate Squire, who's incredible. She was amazing for my time at BBC Radio Manchester as well. And she was essentially the the head of the uh, radio station. And they were bringing back their evening shows and they were having different presenters on each evening. Um, and it turns out that I then got the Thursday night slot. Wow, what? How am I going to make this work? I've got to work now. I've got a regular BBC radio show. I'm starting to work freelance with loads of other people as well. I'm spinning all of these plates once again. And yeah, I then joined the BBC. I joined the Dead Good Show. My producer, Pav, again, another incredible person that was working with me and helping my development. And I really started to learn so much about what it is to be a broadcaster. How do you talk about silly stuff, which I can do easily, but also on the same program within the same hour, how do you talk about something extremely serious that's affecting people's lives? How do you develop those skills to be able to listen and to talk. I always make this joke that I used to get told off in school for talking. Now I do it for a living. But actually, when I when I actually boil it down, I listen for a living. I don't talk. Talking is a result of me listening. And I think that that's one of the most important parts of my job. And actually, how do I communicate with people on a weekly basis and ensure that I'm engaging, the topics are engaging, and people want to listen. And all of these skills I was starting to learn really started to set in place and started to affect me and the way I was carrying myself, what I wanted to do, how I wanted to be seen. And yeah, joining the BBC was great because I had a platform where I could fail, I could learn, I could be successful, I could do something right, I could get constructive criticism and feedback, I could learn and I could ultimately develop And I think that that was one of the biggest 
takeaways that I still look back on. My time during um, BBC Radio Manchester, moving on from the Dead Good show onto Talking Balls, which was a football phone-in and kind of being asked to take over the Sport of Six programme for this new idea they had. Doing all of these new and wonderful things helped me to develop as a broadcaster and as a presenter as well. And you mentioned your time at Radio Manchester. You mentioned that, you know, there were some ups and downs there in terms of learnings. I mean, do do you remember what was your biggest, not failing, but your biggest learning point back then? Because, you know, all the guests that we've had on the show, there's definitely a time in their career where they've gone through adversity and they've come through it at the other end and learned a huge amount. I was just wondering, during that time, what was your biggest period of adversity or your biggest learning point, do you think? I think the one that scared me the most was not turning the faders up uh, <laughs> when you've gone on air. And absolutely, oh, I was frightened. I literally remember how it works is you, you learn how to do all of the faders, how to control the studio. You do all of your own buttons, mics up, levels, everything like that. You're essentially in control of at the same time as presenting the show. Quite normal, um, you would think, but it's quite interesting how many people don't have to do that. Um but being able to do that and all that technical side of things is great once you've got the hang of it. But having to do all of that and think about talking and listening and I've got to create a radio show. Oh, so that was something that I battled with for quite a long time. And yet I always remember the Dead Good show was music as well. Taking control of the studio because you have three separate studios and you put um, one of them is running and you set up the next one. You take control of that studio and you're playing out essentially what's happening from the different studio, then you can put your faders up and start your show. And I always remember pressing play on a song and it just didn't play. Ah. And I was thinking what is happening in those five seconds that felt like five years. Yeah. Um, I'm terrified, but it turns out I just hadn't taken control and I'd press play and it went out all fine. But in my ears, I'm still listening to the next studio that no one's in there. So I can't hear anything. So essentially no one will have ever known except for those five seconds and probably my opening link where I sound absolutely terrified. Um, so I think that kind of battling with that was quite interesting and quite funny and those technical errors that you make at times as well. But the most difficult thing was feeling like this is my home and feeling like I'm suitable and I'm right for the BBC uh, and that I fit in within there because this is the BBC. Is, is a working class kid from Fallowfield meant to be in here? I'm young. People are questioning me and people are questioning the decisions to put me in charge of certain things. People don't like those decisions. People don't like what I'm doing. People don't like all of these different things that are happening externally, they're starting to seep in and they're starting to affect that resilience and that armour that I've built up from being at drama school and facing rejection. You start to doubt yourself a little bit and you don't know where it's going. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, And I think that that, when you're younger, starts to affect you more and more. And then also, you're going out and people are saying, oh, you're BBC Radio Manchester. Oh, I love your show. Oh, you're BBC Radio Manchester. You are talking absolute rubbish. Oh, I don't like you because of what you post online. 
and you're trying to navigate through this world and you're trying to sit there having a pint with your friends and your family and people are asking for pictures and you're thinking, what is happening here? What is this? And I think that that was a weird and wonderful time because I really embraced it. I loved it and I was learning so much. Um, But I think that the biggest adversity was spinning all of those plates and having all of that happen whilst trying to maintain a social life, whilst trying to build relationships and date people. And I was ridiculously busy, um, which is obviously a, a very positive thing. But when you're then trying to date someone and you say to them, yeah, let, let's go on a second date. Well, when are you free? Um, in about three weeks time. And trying to navigate through all of that as well. Uh, and I don't think I did it successfully at times, but I think there are times where I did. And again, you're never going to get it all right, but I'm just glad I didn't get it all wrong. So there was a lot of adversity just in terms of adjusting to a new world that I wasn't used to and making sure that I was also happy at the same time. And that was kind of, yeah, the biggest, the biggest things that I faced and barriers that I faced was just spinning all of those plates and making sure they all spun at the same time and it didn't all come crashing down. Yeah. I mean, you talk about plates. I mean, obviously, you know, you were doing good stuff at the BBC, you know, it's often a a launch pad to people's careers, just getting in at the BBC because there's so many different uh, strands there, isn't there? And um, for those that don't know, you started working on absolute institutions in the in the sporting world, like Match of the Day, Football Focus. How was it working on those shows? I mean, still to this day, I think back and I think, wow, because yeah, I was doing features for Match of the Day and they'd go into the Match of the Day programs on a Sunday morning. Um, and these were the community features. So I'd get to go to different clubs and see what they're doing within their communities and make a feature around it. And let, when I tell you that I used to watch Match of the Day as a kid on a Sunday morning, religiously, like that was what I did. I couldn't stay up that late on a Saturday night because I couldn't stay awake, but also I wasn't allowed. So Sunday mornings was when I could watch it all. And then I'm working on that. And wait a minute, I'm also working on Football Focus. So I'm doing BBC on a Saturday. That's going out, a feature that I've done for them. On a Sunday morning, I'm uh, I'm turning the TV on and I'm on that. And then on a Saturday afternoon as well, I'm working at Five Live and they're sending me out to a different part of the country to work on their sports programme um, from like midday until 3pm. I mean... This was incredible. As you said, the institutions, these are things I've grown up on. And I always remember one weekend, um, I was in London because I was doing Five Live from Fulham. And on that weekend, I'd been on Saturday Social because I was starting to work with Sky Sports as well. Um, I then was going across to Fulham and I was doing something for Five Live in the afternoon for the radio but also Football Focus had ran one of my features that day. So within that day, I've been on national TV, I've been on uh, national radio and also done Sky Sports. And then on the Sunday morning, I woke up and I turned the TV on and I was on Match of the Day. And that is one weekend where I still think back and I think, wow, I'm just a lad from Fallowfield. <laughs> I'm just doing these things and being myself and doing what I love. Yeah. And yeah, that was just a moment where I remember going, this is 
amazing. This is what I've always wanted to do. This is what I'm meant to do. Um, and yeah, being able to work on those was great. But then you get attached to it and you think this is great. I'm going to be doing this forever. And the following season, you don't do a single match of the day feature or football focus feature, ah. which was weird. At the end of that season, I was credited. I was on the end, end credits of uh, Football Focus on their last show where they kind of bring up everyone that's worked with them. And I was credited. It was amazing, this feeling of, wow, I'm part of this. And then it changes. And I have a season of not doing it at all. And I'm very lucky. I've still got uh, the radio, BBC Radio Manchester. I'm still doing little bits uh, with Five Live as well each week. Um, and then I'm also doing... Sky Sports and a guest on Saturday Social. So I'm still busy, but I'd noticed, oh, well, I'm not being used for these anymore. Why is that? Why is this person getting them and I'm not? Why? What? What is happening there? And again, you have to have that resilience, but you then start to doubt maybe, oh, is this because of me? What is this? These feelings of rejection, I've not really had these for the last few years because since I've moved across from acting to presenting, I've not stopped. I've been doing everything, but I'm not doing this anymore. And it's about how you battle through that, how you start to begin to understand that and how you actually accept that it's okay um, as well. Uh, and I think that that's something that I had to learn to do. Um, and there was a lot of conversations with myself and maybe a lot of conversations with my agent at the time and understanding why it was happening. And ultimately knowing that this industry is a game of chess. And people always say, oh, it's snakes and ladders. You go up, then you come down. I don't think that. I think it's a game of chess. You move one piece and it's going great and you're in control and then somebody else or something changes and you've got to adapt and you've got to move another piece and you've got to change your game plan as well. And that's okay because ultimately now I'm still doing that, but it's worked out for the best. And that then resulted in me focusing on BBC Radio Manchester, that running its course and me deciding to step away. Two years ago, in June 2021, after doing the, the radio show through COVID, after surviving all of that and being busy still and making it work, moving online and doing all of these amazing things that I'd done from my bedroom, having to adapt to all of that, it then meant I had to think about what I wanted to do and take a step away from the BBC and again having to adapt and I don't think I would have ever been able to make that decision to move away if I wouldn't have had to adapt when I realized I wasn't going to be doing any more of these features with the BBC and with match of the day or football focus and then how, how does your your freelancing at Sky how does that turn into like a permanent gig that you've got there now obviously you're a Sky Sports reporter and presenter. So how, how does that come about? Do you, do you have to apply for it or does, does somebody just call you in and say, you know, we, we want to give you a permanent gig? How does that come about? Check your DMs. That is all I'll say. You <laughs> never know who's going to be in there, who's sliding <laughs> in. Uh, yeah, so I'd left about two years ago. I'd been doing Saturday Social as a guest and started to take up and do a little bit more with them. But I had left my radio show, I had nothing. And people always say, oh yeah, but you had stuff. I said, no, I literally had nothing. I didn't have anything planned. The Euros were coming up and I didn't know why I was doing. The football season had finished. 
I don't know what I'm doing here. And I got a DM from one of the producers at Sky Sports News seeing if I was free for a chat about possibly being involved in some of the stuff they're doing for the Euros. And I had the chat. I literally was thrown in at the deep end, um, which I look back on and I think, wow, they definitely trusted me. And I joined them as one of their reporters for the breakfast show, Good Morning Euros, that they were doing. And I was being sent every single day to a different location to do some hits into their breakfast show um, around what was happening and to get a feel for the how everyone in the UK was feeling during this Euros um, with Wales and England being involved in it. It was special. It was great. I absolutely loved it. Um, but it was a baptism of fire when I was asked to cook what footballers eat with a chef who cooks for footballers on the first day. And I'm doing live TV for a broadcaster that I've not worked with much, but then I'm cooking on TV for them, (laughs) having to listen to times and doing all of these things. And I think that I showed them that I could be versatile, that I could be flexible, and that I could make it work in any situation. And I managed to do that, got through the Euros, and then they looked to do more. I started working with the transfer shows. I started working in the studio more. And I just got more and more opportunities. They asked me if I wanted to report for them like I had done for the Euros. Yes, of course, started doing that. And I had this hybrid role of reporting, sometimes presenting. Then I was offered Goals on Sunday, another institutional program that had taken a change and joined Sky Sports News. I started presenting that. So I had all of these different opportunities from them. And that was literally from checking my DMs and responding and making the most of one opportunity. Wow. I mean, we haven't even spoken about the other work you've been doing at City, the stuff you do with FIFA, stuff you do with EA Sports. I mean, it's just so much. I know we're, <laughs> we're, we're running out of time. But I, was, I mean, obviously in your current job with Sky Sports, you must have incredible access to all of the players, the managers, the agents, etc. I've seen on your Instagram that you've met, obviously you've met with Pep, but you've also met with Klopp. You've met with Tiger Woods, as you met, mentioned earlier. You've met with Beckham. Who do you think has been the most satisfying interview or piece that you've done in your career so far? You know, in, in, in terms of the sports side of things, who's been the most, yeah, I guess, satisfying interview that you've, you've had the opportunity to, to do? I guess satisfying is an interesting word because in terms of enjoyment and things that I've loved, working with Pep, working with Klopp, they've been two brilliant um, interviews and they've got, amazing personalities. Um, Klopp is so charismatic and if you ask a bad question, he'll let you know about it. Um, But also I like that and I really enjoyed that. Pep, it's like trying to tap into this creative mastermind when it comes to football who knows absolutely everything it feels like about the way he wants to, to do the sport and the game. Um, So they've been two incredible interviews. I've been very lucky to sit down and have an hour-long chat with Ilkay Gundogan, which was satisfying because he was doing so much work during the pandemic for local businesses within Manchester. And we got to explore all of that and also the mental health side of injury within sport and how that affected him. So we had a great conversation there. I sat down this season with Luke Ayling, 
um, a Leeds player around um, his stammer and being able to talk about um, his speech and actually enlighten people about it and actually educate people about it from his perspective, um, which I thought was a conversation I'll never forget. I've had so many opportunities to do that, but at the same time, I've been able to travel and do so many amazing things. One of the most satisfying pieces of work I've ever done isn't even from Sky Sports, though, or the last five or six years I've been doing this. I think it actually is from being 18 years old and going out to Pakistan to film a documentary of the British Council, because doing that at such a young age... Months after I'd been to India as well, by the way, with contact theatre for Contact in the World, where I got to go out there, I was chosen uh, pick of the hat um, just to go out there and and actually work with a theatre company out there. To be able to go out and do those things at 17 and then just after turning 18 opened my mind and it showed me that there's so much of this world that is out there And there's so much more than just my postcode and there's so much more than just my area. There's so much more than just Manchester. And it really gave me the belief that I can travel, I can get out there, I can do all of these things. And I think that came from me. That came from having the confidence to do that and put myself in those positions. But it also came from those people that helped me and really pushed me and that showed me that, I can work and I can do this professionally. And just because you're from where you're from, just because you face what you face or you go through whatever happens to you in life, you can still go on and do these things. And don't get me wrong, there are barriers, there are setbacks, there's so much that happens. And I think for some people, there's obviously more barriers than others, but it's being able to still get out there and still look for those opportunities and not be afraid to apply for certain things or do certain stuff. And one of the most satisfying things is thinking back to 13 years ago, going out to a different part of the world, a part of the world you don't know, a part of the world that so many people have got so many misconceptions about, and seeing how incredible it is, and working with young people that are similar age to you, that are doing a similar thing and a part of a a similar industry in terms of the creative industry in whatever way that is, actually being amongst all of those, you sit back and you think, wow, there's so much in this world that we can do. And I think that that has really instilled a belief and has maybe one of the reasons why I'm not afraid to go out there and put myself out there and why I've not been afraid to do all of these other incredible things I've been very lucky to do. but also all of these incredible things I've worked so hard to do as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I can see why you keep getting these job offers. I mean, it's just your enthusiasm, your hard work, your graft, they just shine through. So that's quite obvious to me. I mean, just a couple of of quick um, questions to round it off. Um, This is a question that we ask all of the guests that come onto the show. Obviously in your career, you've had a lot of success at quite an early age But how much of your success do you think has been down to luck? How much has been down to hard work? Or how much is down to to talent? If you had to choose one out of the three, what would you go for? Um, I think that it's actually a mixture of both. And that might be an answer where I'm sitting on the fence. But let me give you an answer as to why, (laughs) all right? Um, I always remember 
at the City Academy on one of the indoor pitches, there's a saying on the wall that isn't obviously exclusive to Manchester City, but it's hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Um, And that's something that I majorly subscribe to. I think that having the talent is great, but you need the drive and the, the work ethic to also get out there and push that talent and to be open to learning and be open to failing and not just trusting that because you've got this talent, which is also very subjective because you might think you're talented, but other people might think you aren't. Just because you've got this doesn't mean you don't have to go out there and work hard. And there's also that other saying where the the harder you work, the luckier you get. Um, and I subscribe majorly to stoicism in a way of a way of thinking and a way approach not just for life, but for my career as well. And actually understanding that action and what you're doing will have an effect in any way and understanding and and being happy with whatever that effect is and that action. You can talk all day long and you can say all of these things and you can manifest all of this stuff and speak it into existence. You can do all of that as long as you're working at the same time. And I do believe that if you work hard, you marry that with your talent, you will become lucky, whatever luck actually is, because you believe you're lucky because things are happening for you. But if they're happening for you, it's because you're talented and you work hard at the same time. So I subscribe that they all work together. And yeah, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And also the harder you work, the luckier you get. I think those are two things that come into play, especially in this business. There you go, people. You heard it here first. And what's next for you, Carl? Obviously, Jeff Sterling's left the, the show on, on Saturday. Are, are you are you going to pitch in for that for that role? Obviously, there's, <laughs> there's talk sport. There's the Olympics coming up on the horizon. What, what What's next for you? I don't want to timestamp um, this podcast <laughs> uh, where everyone um, will know what time of the year it is, but the Women's World Cup's coming up in Australia very, very soon. I will be heading out to Australia for that. I'll be working with the FA and working with the Lionesses very closely throughout that tournament. So I'll be heading off there. As I said before, it's a game of chess. You never know what's coming up. You don't know who's going to call, what plans are in place, what other people want you to do, what they don't want you to do. It could all change from season to season like I've seen over the years. So ultimately, I just want to continue working I want to continue creating work and doing things that not only satisfy me, but are engaging and other people will like, other people will dislike, people will talk about. um, And I want to continue developing as a broadcaster and get better. And ultimately, this is a journey. It's not about where I can get to. It's about just enjoying it every single day and doing what I do and um, loving what I do at the same time as well. So who knows? Who knows what's coming up? but you just never know. So I want to continue all of this incredible work that I've been able to do so far and get better and better um, at it and just enjoy it. Well, I'm sure we'll hear far more of you over the next few years. So thank you very much for your time, Carl. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to Carl. That was so much fun. I have to confess, I am a big football fan. So... It was great getting a slight peek into the inner workings of sports journalism. And wow, hasn't he interviewed some amazing people? 
Tiger Woods, Pep Guardiola. And he's only just turned 30, I think. Amazing. I'm sure he's definitely going to have a long and successful journalism career, no doubt at all. Let us know what you think about the episode. Hit us up on the socials or send us an email to howicrushedit at gmail.com and catch you on the next show.